0: Hi everyone, I'm Riada Alkyol and this is Dignified Resilience, a podcast on fresh narratives on confronting despair, alleviating distress and forging ahead. In this podcast, we hear from people around the globe at all stages of life and variety of industries and learn how to channel dignified resilience to survive, feed the soul to heal and connect with others through inspiring compassionate actions and behavior. At the same time, I aim to grow a global conversation that seeks to better acknowledge different sociocultural perspectives on meaningfully weathering life's adversities and achieving well-being. Here is a noble and humane invitation for surpassing our old selves by learning about and from other people's moving forces and limitations for successfully overcoming affliction and ache. Remember, we have different lives, distinct pathways, cultures, and contexts but we can find common ground in supporting Dignified Resilience anywhere. So let's go then. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dignified Resilience. I'm so excited to welcome Dr. Brian Hare in today's episode. He is a core member of the Center for, of Cognitive Neuroscience, a Professor in Evolutionary Anthropology and Psychology and Neuroscience at Duke University. He received his PhD from Harvard University in 2004. And in 2005, following his work at the Max Planck Institute in Leipzig, was awarded the Sofia Kovalevskaya Award, Germany's most prestigious award for scientists under 40. In 2007, Smithsonian Magazine named Hare one of the top 35 scientists under 36. He has published over 100 scientific papers. And his research has received consistent national and international attention. In 2019, uh, Hare and his research were featured in Steven Spielberg's documentary series, Why We Hate. Um, His first book with co-author Vanessa Vanessa Woods, The Genius of Dogs, is a New York Times bestseller. Um, And the book that we're going to talk about today, Survival of the Friendliest, Understanding Our Origins and Rediscovering Our Common Humanity, came out as well uh, with Vanessa uh, in July 2020, and she helped a lot with this. So I appreciate everything, uh, including this book um, that Vanessa did to make this happen. And before I welcome Brian, I just want to say that I'm so excited to talk about this book about friendliness and how it came to be an advantageous evolutionary strategy. And I say this because the politics, or rather the topics like genocide, authoritarianism, militant nationalism, patriarchy, human rights abuse, and all the topics that I deal with on daily basis, both professionally and that I have experienced personally uh, because of my background in the Balkans, just makes this book so much more important to me and uh, everything that's written in it uh, very valuable to learn from. I'm very excited to share all this with you. And uh, I hope that we will um, really, really uh, grow uh, thanks to this book as well. I'm was so, i so excited to welcome you, Brian. Uh, let's start from the beginning. Welcome. And how are you today?
1: Uh, thank you, Rihanna. I'm really excited to be with you, too. Um, <laughs> and I'm doing great. I'm excited to talk about uh, how friendliness wins.
0: Well, excellent. Um, <laughs> let's start from the beginning, then to guide and help our listeners and viewers kind of get to the big picture of survival of the friendliest. Let's start with the survival of the fittest. Um, You write in your book saying that cooperation is the key to our survival as species because it increases our evolutionary fitness. But I really was, um, it was fascinating for me to read how you explained to us that somewhere along the way, fitness became synonymous with physical fitness. Can we unpack this a little bit?
1: Yeah, so um, I, I think that uh, the normal way that I think people uh, construe survival of the fittest is it's the biggest, the strongest, uh, you know, an alpha male or a group, uh, you know, the group that has, you know, whatever, the most money or the most guns, that that's the fit um that's not what's meant by that expression it's how people use it it's how people have interpreted it but that's not what it means from a biological or evolutionary perspective all it means is the group or organism that has reproductive success um Mm -hmm. is fit uh and it often and what we uh observe in nature is that it's friendliness Uh, That is the strategy that leads to the most fitness, uh, because whenever you see a new type of fitness or sorry, a new type of friendliness evolve, uh, you almost certainly see new forms of cooperation and that type of organism or class of organism. Uh, becomes incredibly successful. And we could talk about examples all the way from uh, flowers and flowering plants to humans uh, as examples of uh, friendliness being sort of the secret to evolutionary success or success at life.
0: That's amazing, especially, I mean, for me, it was, in, I didn't know, as you write that to Darwin and modern biologists, survival of the fittest referred to something very specific and which was the ability to survive. And leave behind viable offspring, that it was not meant to go beyond that. And I think that um, another thing which which was very powerful is that um, you you, I think, wrote that no folk theory, arguably, of human nature has done more harm than that survival of the fittest. And I think that's why a lot of people, when they hear survival of the friendliest... Uh, will at best be curious and at worst uh, stick to their familiar survival of the um, fittest thing. So then tell us, um, you tell the readers that there were dozens of different species within our genus Homo and there is fossil and DNA evidence for the most of approximately 200 to 300,000 years that Homo sapiens has existed that we share the planet with at least four other human species. So then why is this important, Brian? Like, what is it particularly about what happens with those different upgrades in upper Paleolithic time that allow us to thrive while other humans just went extinct?
1: Yeah, so I think one of the big shockers in uh, anthropology or the study of human evolution is the realization that you just highlighted, that we weren't alone until very, very recently. That's actually a new finding. The last sort of 15 years, people have started to realize, oh my gosh, it wasn't until 50,000 years ago, maybe even 25,000 years ago, we were alone. And the species that have been described based on the fossil evidence, they all had big brains. They all uh, left cultural evidence. technology, etc. And they almost certainly had some kind of linguistic ability that we would recognize. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those are usually the traits we use to distinguish humans from animals. Mm -hmm. But these other species, three, four, five of them had all of those traits, we normally say, Oh, that's what makes us not an animal. Mm -hmm. Well, um, they don't actually predict success, because all of those species had those traits, and they're all extinct. So if anything, big brain, language, culture predicts extinction, not success. And so then that leaves you scratching your head saying, well, it must be something on top of in addition to big brains, culture and language that allow us to survive and all those species went extinct. And that then dovetails with this idea that survival of the friendliest again and again in nature is the strategy that leads to a huge survival advantage Maybe that's something that was involved in and in how we made it and other species did it.
0: That's really fascinating. And you, yes, you tell us there was this particular type of friendliness called cooperative communication that helped us. And then you introduce in the book at different uh, points, various studies that you've done um, with chimpanzees. And you'll tell us all about this, but it was interesting for me to read that As we would expect, chimpanzees are cognitively sophisticated in many uh, of the ways humans are. But even though we're so similar, they were really kind of uh, struggling to understand when communication was supposed to help them accomplish something. So that's, as you said, what helped human uh, sapiens uh, flourish, I guess, but then now that we started talking about animals, of course, which are a very important part of this book, do you say that when you began studying animals, uh, you were focused on social competition, that it never occurred to you that communication and friendliness could be important for cognitive evolution. And you did address this a little bit in your previous answer as well. Uh, so what happened in your work and therefore in your thinking that guided you to this conclusion?
1: Yeah, I mean... I spent uh, a lot ten years excited about the idea, together with lots of other people who who were excited about Machiavellian intelligence, that mm-hmm. intelligence really is for out competing and, um, you know, sort of manipulating and exploiting others uh, so that you can win. Um, and it's not to say that that's not a force that shapes evolution, but um, uh, in the evolution of animal psychology, I'm not suggesting it's not, but um, uh, I think that there was so much focus on that that we missed the glaring, obvious, uh, much larger, much more powerful force, which is friendliness, and what really shook my worldview was I worked with a population of foxes in Siberia mm-hmm. um, that a famous Russian geneticist named Dmitry Belyaev had uh, selected. He had a breeding experiment um, and he selected a population of foxes to not be fearful of humans, but to be attracted to humans and to actually want to be nearest and want to um, affiliate or or interact with us in friendly ways. And he selected with his team these foxes for decades um, uh, to be friendlier towards humans. Mm-hmm. And he kept a control line that he bred randomly uh, for how they interact with humans. And so that meant he could compare the two and see what the impact of friendliness and the selection for friendliness had on the foxes. And The foxes, I have personally met, I've personally interacted with both populations. And one population, when you stand in front of them, the control line, they run away, they don't wanna be near you. If you try to touch them, they try to bite you. Um, You know, they're afraid and they become aggressive. Mm -hmm. Um, The other line, uh, the one that's been selected to be attracted and interested and friendly towards humans. I mean, they are dying to jump into your arms and hug you. They cry for joy. Just seeing a human they've never seen before, they start whining like a dog. They just want to be with you. They want to be held and hugged. And so, I mean, it's hard not to have been you know, completely shaken to the core when you, it, it was experimentally demonstrated uh, what this uh, selection can do. Um, and of course it had all sorts of impacts on the foxes beyond just their friendly behavior
0: so is this then so this leads us i guess to self domestication right is this this friendliness evolved through self domestication can you tell us a little bit about that process behind it as it how and why is it that it's not just a result of artificial selection accomplished by humans choosing which animals to breed. And you mentioned Dmitri Beliaev, but we also learned uh, about your experience with your closest childhood friend dog Oreo. We learn about your cooperation with Mike Tomasello and what you two work together. So, what is it that we kept that you kept seeing, both from other people's research and from your research um, with animals?
1: Well, the, yeah, so the reason that we went I went to Siberia was that my um in conversation with my uh, uh collaborator Mike Tomasello, we came to realize that dogs uh have something important to share uh about ourselves. Um you'd think that a dog what could it possibly tell you about humans? Um but it ends up that dogs share the ability to understand Cooperative communication, so especially gestural communication, when we gesture to each other to try to um, tell each other, hey, there's something over there you should pay attention to Mm -hmm. or be interested or search for. Um, It ends up, that's kind of the first thing that happens in uh, human development around nine to 12 months that then is the launching pad for Uh, Becoming cultural, understanding others and learning and standing on the shoulders of giants and getting to take advantage of all the knowledge of, you know, thousands of generations. That's the first thing that comes online that allows us to do it. And it ends up that chimpanzees bonobos are two closest living primate relatives. As smart as they are, they don't do it. Um, And it ends up that what we discover, and it started with my pet dog Oreo, uh that uh he does and they and dogs do they understand us uh in a way that uh is very similar to how human infants understand us and it was sort of this shocking thing so the reason i went to siberia was i went to test the friendly foxes to see if they would be able to read humans in the way that uh dogs can and it ends up that they do And I actually didn't think they were going to be able to, um, but they do. And it ends up that it was selection for friendliness that allowed them to read humans as if they were human infants they understand our gestures and they can solve problems like dogs can even though the russians never selected them to be smarter uh, they became so more socially savvy and better able to cooperate because of the selection for friendliness so that leads to the first part of your question which is tell me about self-domestication so the obviously uh, intentionally breeding foxes together that are friendly, that's called artificial selection. But uh, if uh, you take a step back and you ask yourself, okay, but the selection was just for an attraction um, to something, I mean, there's um, so many examples in nature where selection, natural selection, has favored an organism being attracted to something, whether it's a place or a type of food or a new social partner, that happens all the time. We have evidence for that all over the place. Um, You know, attraction to light, for instance. Um, So being attracted to uh, a, a specific type of organism, I mean, that happens all the time. So this is clearly something that can happen due to natural selection. Um, And so then that led us to think about, okay, well, in the case of dogs, what likely happened was, because we know that dogs evolved uh, interacting with hunter-gatherers, we know that the split from wolves happened 15 to 25,000 years ago. That's before there's agriculture or anything else, Mm -hmm. that it was almost certainly that wolves became attracted to humans who were leaving a lot of garbage around that they could Mm -hmm. eat, Mm -hmm. and that selection of being attracted to something you used to be afraid of was probably the selection that launched the whole thing uh, of dog-human relationship, allowed them to cooperate and communicate more like us. And it reveals, and the most important thing for thinking about our own species, it reveals that selection for friendliness is what can allow for increases in cooperative communication, like the one we need to explain its origin in our own species.
0: That's amazing, Um, and and so, besides learning that dogs and people are built for this cooperative communications and that chimpanzees are not i gotta say that i had so much fun learning about bonobos and female bonobos in particular yeah and what male bonobos how how do they get what's the only way to get to the females is through friendship with the mothers if i recall well was it that's right uh uh, and just really it was fascinating to learn about the difference between female chimpanzees and female bonobos and that the ones uh, you know, that female chimpanzees um help only their relatives, but that female bonobos help all females. So um, it's really um, and I mean, I want people to read the book. I don't want to tell them everything, but it's it's it, it's amazing how we learn about similarities, but despite the similarities, how there are these very important nuances between particular animals and ourselves um that that connect us and that where does this friendliness come in. So then, um let's get into a little bit more detail about what leads some species to be more cognitively sophisticated than others. I'm here referring particularly to the importance of social networks, but I'll let you guide us through this.
1: Yeah, so I think you know the way we normally think about it is, uh, as a biologist uh, or evolutionary-minded people, if, if you're going to have a trait increase in number in a population, uh, you know, the individuals that have that trait are going to be better able to have offspring and, and that's called direct selection, meaning that trait is specifically allowing you to do better at having offspring and then your genes for that trait will spread. Um, but basically what I'm telling you is the Fox experiment sort of changes that thinking, which is that actually you can have selection on a totally different trait, friendliness, mm-hmm. and that then allows you to be smart in a really important new way. Mm -hmm. And so it's not, it's actually a really simple idea. It's not magic. Mm -hmm. The idea is that you were fearful but now you're attracted to a new social partner, and you're going to use your old cognitive abilities to that you were using with, uh, you know, other social partners. But you're going to use it with this new social partner you used to be afraid of, mm-hmm. um, and that's the that's the argument. But because you can use it in a new way with a new partner, it means you can solve all sorts of new problems. And especially mm-hmm. in the case of dogs or, or early dogs with humans, I mean, humans are pretty good problem solvers to be working with. Mm-hmm. Um, So the idea is that you can have a big jump in problem-solving ability and sophistication with a new form of cooperation. And to get new cooperation, you have to have new types of friendliness. So um, in the case of um, humans, the argument is that uh, late in human evolution, uh, over the last few hundred thousand years, the reason our species was able to outcompete other human species again, was not because somehow we were smarter, got a bigger brain, or that we had, we don't have bigger brains. We did not have bigger brains. It's not that. Um, It had to be something else. And the argument is that we actually got better at becoming friends with strangers. Now, this seems counterintuitive at first, Mm -hmm. uh, because we all read the news. Mm -hmm. But uh, the argument is that humans actually, because we have social identity, Uh, We evolved to recognize not just our close family network as like us and our group, but also those who have some kind of cultural trait, whether it's language or a tattoo or a way to speak or a way we Mm -hmm. prepare our food, whatever. A complete stranger you've never met before, if they have that uh, signal of being in your group, you recognize them immediately as a friend. Uh, And so other humans did not have that ability. Uh, If they uh, saw a stranger who may have the same dialect, language, or food, they still would have been very xenophobic and scared and aggressive. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what that does, if you can have a positive response to a stranger and, again, being attracted to something you used to be afraid of strangers that have this cultural signal of being like you having your social identity it means you can learn from new individuals you can share ideas and most importantly innovations in technology so you have a much bigger network of brains innovating and sharing ideas and all of a sudden your technological uh, abilities take off uh, your culture uh, starts to change much more rapidly becomes far more rich and you can outstrip the other humans that aren't able to do it. And we think that's what happened. It was really a new type of friendliness, uh, an attraction to strangers that share your social identity.
0: That's amazing and also frightening at the same time, precisely because we both expanded our definition of who we considered as a group member, but then also, we got to the idea of intra-group stranger. And um, tell us then a little bit about it because that's pretty much how we get to try to understand and reconcile, um, as you also say, our unique friendliness with our capacity for cruelty.
1: Right, and I think we are the friendliest species, but also the cruelest species. Mm -hmm. And there's a paradox there that has to be solved. And I think actually, understanding we evolve this new type of friendliness that allows for our unbelievable cooperation and and cultural prowess. Um, I think it actually reveals the 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 the, where our dark uh, part of our nature comes from. Um, So I think uh, based on the best evidence that we have that as we become more accepting of complete strangers that share our group identity, um, just like uh, a, a mom uh, or parents who have a new offspring or, or child, um, and they love that child, it's the most nurturing thing you could ever imagine. I like to use the example of a polar bear, you know, mama polar bear, and she has her uh, infants and they're playing. And I mean, what could be cuter and more wonderful? Um, but actually, at the same time, it is the most dangerous time to be near that mother bear. Because why? Because she loves her infants. And if she feels they are threatened, Mm -hmm. she will do anything and risk anything to protect them. Mm -hmm. And so I think what happened and what we hypothesize in the book and we have evidence for is that as humans expanded our circle of love, where we began to see strangers that share our group identity as if they were family we also then began to love them as if they were family. And therefore, when they are threatened or our group identity is threatened, we become like a mama polar bear and we become those scariest, uh, most uh, horrifically violent species there is to protect that identity and those group members we love so deeply.
0: That's, and I mean, and the group that we're speaking about, as you write in the book, can be from the smallest in terms of sports fans to you know um, a nation to ethnic group to religious group um and and it changes as well but what was really uh, so powerful and i think so important to keep reiterating is that when we feel like you say that that group that we love is threatened by a different uh, social group that we are completely capable of just unplugging that group from um capacity to empathize with them, and it allows us to dehumanize them. And that's something that I always try to um, talk about and try to explain, because we really need to understand how dehumanization works and what it leads to and what it allows. So then tell me a little bit, uh, I mean, you That's why you also write in the book, it's so powerful, that sentence, we are both the most tolerant and the most merciless species on the planet. So now that we get to dehumanization, Brian, can you, uh, and I do want to mention here um, on air, David Livingston Smith, our common friend, he was a guest at uh, the podcast and I think you and him have a lot of um, commonalities in in terms of how you talk about dehumanization as well. Tell us also a little bit about, I would appreciate um, if you could tell us about uh, social psychologist, Newark Tilley, and the pioneering study using March of Progress, going yes. as a measure of dehumanization. And I also do want to emphasize this. Um, <laughs> I'm a Muslim, so though I have heard of this study before, it is always brutal um, to keep uh, listening and to keep seeing evidence about really the increasing, ever increasing dehumanization, and uh, some very scary outcomes uh, that come out of this research. Tell us a little bit in general—not, I mean, about N- Noor's uh, research, but also uh, the social forces that influence this identity, which is, I guess, a good and a and a bad thing. But this is the humanization. It takes so little to trigger this group, Brian. Right?
1: It does, but but I, I would uh, so so let me. Um... Uh, back up and say uh, yes. So I think it, because em- your first part of your question was it emanates actually from uh, this positive side where we yeah. have empathy and caring mm-hmm. and concern and love for those that share our social identity. Um And it actually comes from the desire to protect those that we love. It just happens that humans are strange. What makes us Uh, different from other organisms is we actually love an identity we love our social identity and of course that is so fluid it's it's culturally constructed what an identity is and it's super flexible um, which actually can be problematic but also reason for hope we might return to that too so um, uh, where does dehumanization come from you really uh, put your finger on it is that when you uh if we're going to be so empathic and actually feel what others feel when they suffer well that makes it really hard to do horrible things and be aggressive and violent so what what we propose has happened is that there must be a mechanism to shut that off uh that caring and concern uh that would allow humans to harm others And so that's effectively what we're arguing dehumanization is. It's a mechanism where basically the unique parts of our ability to cooperate, communicate, and care about others, basically there's an off switch. Uh, The unique features of our mind can turn off and we can morally exclude groups of individual human beings Mm -hmm. who we feel are threatening our social identity or our group. And we see them as not fully human. And uh, then we do not have to, uh, you know, give them full moral consideration. And and obviously, this isn't done consciously or intentionally necessarily, uh, but uh, it is done when we feel that uh, there's threat. And uh, that means that um, you know the threat is coming from this other group, and therefore, um, you know they're threatening my social identity, and I don't see them as fully human. Um, so, uh, in terms of uh, the work on the ascent of, of man or the march of progress, um, it you know in doing research for the book and um, thinking about how we could have this paradox paradoxical nature of being so kind and cruel. Um, I have to say, I had the same response you did when I first encountered uh, this work. It was shocking, horrifying, uh, and um, but at the same time, it was uh, it, it because you could now see potentially what the problem is. It gave me hope because now I can work on it. You know, mm-hmm. now we can move forward. So, so I would just say that uh, terrifying, um, but um, at the same time. Maybe there's a little hope there, but but the yeah. measure is uh, that famous picture of sort of um, it's supposed to uh, represent humans evolving, and everybody knows, you know, there's like a a monkey in it and an ape and an Australopithecine, and then maybe a uh, some human, and then usually people use there's like some kind of joke like at the end, mm-hmm. um, and uh, of course this is a total mischaracterization of evolution. Evolution isn't progressive. Um, it, it you know, humans are not the apex of evolution, anything like this, but that's what people carry into it. There's not a hierarchy. Um, humans aren't somehow intrinsically more valuable as organisms than chimpanzees or any other organism. So it really misrepresents so much. Um, but unfortunately, uh, it's a, it has been uh, used uh, as a very powerful tool to detect, blatant forms of dehumanization. So the question is asked with this um, picture. Uh, basically, there's different groups listed uh, and different groups of humans. It could be a religious group, it could be a political group. it could be uh, male, female. it could be a profession. And um, hey, there are these different groups of people. Um, not everybody, it's the way it's stated is, you know, not everybody is um, uh, you know or how human. Uh, are these different groups um and then use a sort of the, the, a slider there's like a slide you can slide you can slide it underneath the different organisms whether you know this group is more like a chimpanzee or it's more like a, uh australopithecine or more like a, a full human being and so people can slide and obviously what you're expecting everyone to do is all these groups are fully human i mean there's nothing to do you just slide it all the way to the end um and what's found is that certain individuals, a certain proportion of every single demographic that has ever been studied, every race, every age, every political group, um, there's a proportion of people who will not attribute full humanness to different groups um, that they're asked about. Um, And that would be kind of curious. and, you know, maybe not troubling, except for when you ask additional questions about uh, mm-hmm. do you uh, accept harm to mm-hmm. these groups? Yeah. Um, would you accept torture? Mm-hmm. Would you accept uh, drone bombings? Would you accept, uh, you know, all sorts of yeah. different different things that are harmful? And uh, the number one predictor of whether people will accept harm is if they do not rate or attribute full humanness using this scale uh, to other human groups. So uh, it, it, it is more powerful as a measure than uh, your standard measures of prejudice mm-hmm. um, that measure how much you like a group. Um, and it's uh, been replicated. I've replicated it in my own work. And we've even most disturbingly seen it in uh, very young children, as young as six to seven years of age, willing to dehumanize um, uh, an out group in a what's called a minimal group manipulation where it's even just an abstract group it doesn't even have an identity um, you just call it a different group that's competing with you that that um adults have said this is a disgusting um badly behaved group and young children will readily dehumanize and wish harm on this other group uh even though they haven't even really been in school for very long
0: That's insane and so powerful. This is all so powerful and good to learn, uh, particularly to just summarize to to our listeners and viewers. Think about this, what Brian said, that repeatedly what was found with a measure of this dehumanization was that it was that dehumanization that also signified later the willingness to inflict harm and suffering on other group of people. And then uh, what Brian also mentioned about the perception uh, that these groups that were dehumanizing, that they were the ones being dehumanized. I just want to reiterate the power of media then maybe and propaganda and how that ends up uh, coming to place as well. And again, uh, what what he mentioned about the babies and what we talk about in terms of the importance of parenting, in terms of the values that we instill in the language and the kind of notions and perceptions that that we um, share and teach um, kids. But we'll get to the education part. It gets tricky with that as well. Um, I, I do want to um, ask you, Brian, it was so interesting for me to learn about uh, Albert Bandura's experiment on dehumanization. I mean, Can you please tell us more about, I mean, we know, okay, there were three dominant explanations in the field of social psych that aim to understand what made ordinary people do terrible things. But why do we know so little about Albert Bandura's experiment on dehumanization? Enlighten us.
1: Yeah, so so that was one of the big surprises from doing research for the book was, first of all, um, discovering this incredible experiment Um, which I'll describe in a second, but then also discovering that no one talks about it. Um, Mm -hmm. it, It's never been replicated. um, And it really wasn't until uh, Professor Tiley did all his amazing work with uh, Emile Brunet and others um, where dehumanization kind of, uh, and Philip Goff as well, uh, Mm -hmm. sort of picked up uh, steam as a topic that's vitally important to study. Um, so the Bandura experiment, uh, the other thing that's really crazy about it is it was published at the same time that Milgram's, um, famous monograph yeah. on obedience to authority was published. Milgram has been cited, uh, you know, bajillion times. times. <laughs> it's in every intro psych course, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and probably should be, but Bandura is, you know, completely, uh, this, this experiment ignored. And so what happened, um, is post World War II, a lot of people obviously were trying to explain the Holocaust and all the other horrible things that had happened. Um, how can you explain this um, uh, part of uh, human history and our psychology? And so, three dominant explanations came to be used. One is uh, um, obviously uh, uh, authoritarian uh, uh, attraction to authoritarian uh, authoritarianism. Uh, Conformity, so the Mm -hmm. idea that people um, will conform to things. If lots of other people are doing it, they'll do it too. Mm -hmm. And then prejudice. Um, So basically, the idea is that um, we like or dislike different groups of people, and so we might do um, bad things to them. Mm -hmm. But the problem is prejudice, in particular, is it's absolutely a real thing, and it's a real problem. But as Philip Goff uh, has argued and others have argued, prejudice in the liking and disliking a group of people it might make you not pay them as well or not hire them for a job or maybe you're rude to them or you may do um you know things that are um you know not very nice Mm -hmm. um and hurtful but it it doesn't explain the worst forms of violence uh Mm -hmm. it doesn't explain uh you know doing things at the level of genocide um and so dehumanization uh as an explanation does a better job of that and it starts with bandura's experiment where it was um a group of people were uh, asked to teach um other people a task um but uh they they heard the experimenter describe the people they were teaching in two different ways in one way they were described as you know people like you and the other way, they were described as um, disgusting and, um, uh, you know, uh, ill-mannered, not polite. Um, and, uh, you know, that in a way, they were dehumanized, animal-like um, in their behavior. And the group that was described as sort of like you, um, if, if as they failed to learn, um, the teachers actually were told to shock the people when they made mistakes, but they actually had a choice of how much shock to give and they would use less electricity as the people that were described as like them were failing. So they would lower the shock. The opposite thing happened with the group that had been dehumanized as they were making mistakes and they made increasing amounts of mistakes. The teachers would actually increase the shock, even though they knew the shock wasn't working. Uh, and they kept increasing, increasing the shock, uh, more and more to the point that it was a lethal level. Um, so this was the first evidence that, um, what the, I think the scariest thing about dehumanization, if you were to take away one concrete thing about dehumanization, especially that I learned, we know that it's bad and that it would allow people to harm, but it's, I think the scariest thing is when you are when a population is being dehumanized the people who are dehumanizing them they actually become more supportive of harm towards the other group so if you're if you go and you say you're hurting them you're you're shocking them with a high level of shock they actually when you tell them you're hurting them more they become more likely to hurt more using that method if that if they learn that method hurts you more they're more likely to do it more if they find out it's working to hurt you.
0: Yeah, and that's also you write in the book saying, so not only were people able to absolve themselves from hurting somebody who's who they dehumanize, it's also that they believed these subjects were less sensitive to pain. So that was another um, in- incredible thing. Um, and then I mean Bandura concluded that the humanization was central to explaining human cruelty, as you tell us. and yeah um, you remind us about how social media helps accentuate this tendency for human cruelty as well. and uh, it's I guess natural while one reads the book to just ask. And you know, like, but okay, so why can't we do it? What, of course, it's impossible and horrible to think about breeding friendlier humans because of all the behavioral traits that are so complicated for any behavior and thousands of genes involved. And you explain all that process, but then, Brian, what? could we do or what did we do and here i'm referring maybe to that chapter highest freedom which i really like um considering that you we get into politics um and you say we did not evolve to be despots Hear me out, all my peeps out there who write about uh, authoritarianism and and despotism all the time, because it's a reality. And I found it so beautiful and so important to hear. But then let's please explain to our listeners and viewers about that transition from how and when the seeds of despotism, as you say, were sown, and all the way to something that we invented called constitutional democracies.
1: Yeah, so... um... I think that, uh, you know, the most important thing in terms of friendliness is, you know, we all want more of it. Uh, yeah. And so then how do we get more? And, mm-hmm. you know, when you're talking about animals and the whole story I just told you is the fox were bred, it's natural. And people ask me all the time, well, let's just breed humans to be friendlier. Um, it wouldn't work because as you say, there are thousands of genes involved with complicated behaviors. We don't know which they are. We can't identify who has them, who doesn't, et cetera. But then there's the other little mathematical problem of uh, when they did the fox experiment, only about 1% of the foxes were chosen each generation to reproduce. Uh, There's 7 billion people on the planet. Uh, So are we going to have 1% of people allow offspring? Even if we could identify the genes that are involved in friendliness, that's not going to happen. And it's
0: morally repugnant, as you also And
1: and, and that's on top of it being absolutely morally repugnant. But Mm. I always like to explain why it wouldn't work. Um, Because I think when we just tell people it's morally repugnant, people still want to know, yeah, but would it work? And the answer is no, it wouldn't um even though it's awful um so all right well we still want to be friendly so what do we do um and i think if 20 years ago or 15 years ago we said oh you know technology we have all these great ways to interact with each other it's all going to lead to so much happiness um well that's that's gone well and also not (laughs) because we have that paradoxical nature um, so I we really land in the book on democracy. It is uh, the only social system ever invented um, that really keeps uh, in in a complex, large scale society that we all live in now that keeps uh, an egalitarian uh, uh, lifestyle and spirit uh, healthy and alive. And we did not evolve to be despots, and I can say that with great authority, because um, uh, humans have only uh, lived with agriculture for about 10,000 years, and of course, we've only had an industrial way of life for the last 150 or so years. Uh, well, what were, what were humans like uh, over 10,000 years ago? Well, everyone lived as hunter-gatherers, as foraging populations. Our species' origin is about 300,000 years ago. Our genus, Homo, is about 2 million years old. So. Until ten thousand years ago, everybody was living in groups of fifty to one hundred fifty individuals in a band. It's known as a band. There was no chief. There was no individual who who could overpower all under individuals in the group because humans have something called a reverse dominance hierarchy. People would form coalitions against anybody who tried to dominate the entire group. There's a there's a very well shown. Um, uh, aspect of foraging society and cultures across uh, hundreds of different societies have been studied, that people who try to be despotic are kicked out of the group, um, even uh, you know, uh, murdered, um, if they try to dominate. So uh, we did not evolve to be despots. It, the seed for despotism was sown with the first seed uh, by agriculturalists as we started living in these more higher, uh, sorry, large-scale complex societies Then you could have, uh, using technology, people starting to monopolize resources. And now you can have uh inequality that then leads to the potential for uh despotism, authoritarianism uh to uh be born. Um so it's not till we have finally uh, you know, uh constitutional democracies or liberal democracies that we finally have a solution. Because I- until you have that, all you have is one despot taking over. You know, there's a rebellion against that despot, but the rebellion then turns into its own uh authoritarian regime. Uh, Using whatever their ideology is. Um, and it's just a tit for tat forever um, zero sum uh you know fight. So when you have finally have a democracy, you have a, a way to have a complex society where yes, you have winners and losers temporarily, but even when you're out of power, um, you know, obviously there's gonna be a peaceful transition. Number one, but number two, when you're out of power, you still have a voice. You still can um, advocate, lobby, um, and you can um, try to uh, change things in the direction you'd like to see them. So um, uh, one hopeful thing, one last hopeful thing is David uh, Stasevich um, uh, wrote a book um, called um, uh, The, The Fall and the Rise of Democracy. Uh, And the reason he titled it, because he actually argues that democracies and democratic systems were actually quite frequent uh, in um, uh, early history. So I mean, during early agricultural uh, societies as well. Um, And so uh, he makes the case that democracy is something that uh, not only were we uh really egalitarian as hunter-gatherers but even when agriculture takes over there was a lot of evidence for democratic systems of self-government so Mm -hmm. i i think it's the hope i think Mm -hmm. i think optimizing finding ways and uh supporting democratic institutions that is how we will keep our nature and our have our friendlier future and keep the worst parts of our nature at bay
0: and I'm so grateful uh, that you said liberal democracy, because uh, in the last uh, few years, if not a decade, we've seen a rise of illiberal democracies as well. And there is a lot of discussion of what it is and what democracy it actually entails, that it's not just the ballots, um, et cetera, et cetera. But that would take us to a different conversation. I do want, before I ask you about the solutions and some like potential uh, lights at the end of the, the, the tunnel, can you please explain something that I thought also was so interesting? importance when you explain the rise of alt right for example which is also very well pertinent for for today's day and age you do tell us how we can describe it as a loosely defined group of people with far right ideologies who reject mainstream conservatism as you say and tend to score high on measures of either social dominance orientation or right-wing authoritarianism. Tell us a little bit about why people in that SDO and RWA both tend to be extremely intolerant, and yet their ideologies are distinct. And I think another thing which is so adequate, both for conversations that are going on uh, within the United States right now, maybe, but in general, uh, you have, I found a circle, a scheme, guys, that I will keep using, and I told it to Brian, I don't, I don't know, do you want to tell us or should we leave it as a teaser? But the moderate middle in democracy, and then what happens on the people who get extreme? I do say this because I think that it's important to understand that we all have the capacity to dehumanize others. I think that it's very easy to get into the self righteous mode of, oh no, we can never do that, and we are better by default. As hurtful as um, or as delicate as this very sentence said allowed. Uh, might be um we're talking about science right
1: yeah and 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 so um I, you know i have to thank karen Stenner um mm-hmm. and jim sedanius who um karen Stenner has a book called authoritarianism um and it's in there that she talks about um uh sdo and rdo RWA, which I'll define in a second, uh, SDO, social dominance orientation, was actually originally proposed uh, by Jim Sedanius. And SDO is the idea that people vary in their recognition of uh, hierarchies between groups. Some people feel really strongly that uh, certain groups are superior to other groups and that some groups can be inferior and that. That hierarchy is related to the intrinsic value of the people in those groups and whether they deserve uh, goods or services or uh, even human rights. Um, and uh, so that's uh, on the other end of the spectrum are people who are more egalitarian and they don't really care what group you're in. You know, A person is a person is a person. And there's those two extremes. Um, right-wing authoritarianism the real uh strong personality trait in individuals with very strong right-wing authoritarianism is the need to conform that uh you as an individual need to conform to your own social identity and group uh but you also want others to conform uh to your um, social identity and norms um and karen stinner points out that these are actually two different axes And it was one of these aha moments for me um, that, oh, my gosh, you know, this right versus left um, that we talk about is actually hiding and obscuring uh, in a really dangerous way an important distinction between uh, different uh, individual characteristics that lead to very different policy and political um, uh, judgment. Um, so the idea of right-wing authoritarianism is you're really concerned with conformity, uh, you want things to be the same, and you want everyone else to do everything the same. Um, and, uh, if you want, if you favor authoritarianism, it's because that authority, that authority figure is gonna make sure there's, you know, sameness and norms that you accept and your identity will be, um, safe and, uh, you know, won't be threatened. Um, when it comes to people who are strong in SDO, social dominance orientation, they want their identity and they want their group to be on top. Uh, and they really feel it's a zero-sum game and that they their group needs to defeat um, and outcompete other groups. Um, and they want to be the ones in charge. Um, so the circle was then adding on top of these two axes of political judgment or individual characteristics, uh, the idea that all humans dehumanize. And if you think of the two axes and sort of you know a, a vertical and horizontal line, one being sort of uh, extreme uh, right-wing authoritarianism to um, total nonconformist, uh, and then uh, vertical axes being um, social dominance orientation, uh, where you feel groups are superior, and then uh, the opposite being really egalitarian. We all are capable of, of dehumanization. That moderate middle is sort of negotiating all of these different, you know, the the the, the um, tension between egalitarian and um, you know the fact that certain people uh, may have more or, or may have worked and earned more, whatever. How do we deal with that problem versus um, right-wing authoritarianism where um, we need to kind of have the same norms of cooperation, um, but then individuals should have their individual rights. How do we fight those tensions, right? And so in that moderate middle we, we argue, we, we um, you know, make good policy sometimes bad policy to deal with it and then we change it. Um, but outside of that moderate middle is where you start having ideology and you have ideologues who um, really feel strongly And when there's a threat that hits the system uh, where an identity becomes threatened and you have an increase in dehumanization and maybe some authoritarian sort of helps trip that along, um, in fact, claiming that your group is being dehumanized even though it's not, then you can have people in all of the different dimensions move towards dehumanization. And so any form of ideological extremism can then Uh, grab the darker force of our human nature and lead to dehumanization and the want um, or acceptance of harming another group um, as a result.
0: wow. And and one thing that uh, you also tell us is that ideologues are usually unresponsive to facts uh, that contradict their political beliefs and are less interested in compromise. So I think that's very important to uh, to remind our listeners and uh, viewers, and if anything you say, they also may tend to be more educated. Um, So then, Tell us what are the solutions. Um, I mean, there there is the point of all this is before we all and as we get depressed, that like you say, <laughs> that we that we learn about how this works in order to be able to catch it and in order to be able to ring the alarm bells or keep ringing the alarm bells, um, and uh, and and to to do what we can as individuals first of all within our choices and then uh, broader as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, and and I want to be clear that, you know, it's like being an engineer. Um, I think everything we've just talked about is we've kind of gone under the hood of the human psyche and said, okay, what's going on here? How's this thing built? How's it been engineered? Um, And given the engineering, how can we make it run better? Um, And so I just want to be clear that um, it can be scary. It can be, um, you know, you don't want it to be true. um, But the alternative is uh, to try to have a fish climb a tree. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you're, you know, or try to have a a snowmobile, you know, go on the, uh, you know, take you boating. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the mind is, if we're right and the mind is designed this way, then we need to confront that design and come Mm -hmm. up with a better way to have us run and have a a friendlier future. I think we have good solutions. I think we have decades of work that point directly to what we can do. Um, And some of it is uh, uh, things we can do personally and other things are more at a larger societal level um, I think they're all doable. They're all within the range of things that humans have done when they've set their minds as individuals and groups. So concretely, um, if I was just to make it very simple to take home, it is cross group friendships. Um, so friendships across different groups that may in the past have seen each other as threatening. Um, or currently see each other threatening. Now, this isn't a new idea. It's an old idea, but it's it's um, incredibly uh, well-tested and it's increasingly well-tested and it's increasingly demonstrated more than anything else that it has a very positive impact. Um, and the idea is these cross-group friendships form bridges across groups. And when people uh, have friends across different groups, it actually allows other people in both those groups to see that friendship And when there's some kind of threat that might allow for dehumanization, it becomes harder for dehumanization to occur because those friendships humanize the different groups. Mm -hmm. And so that um, uh, makes it uh, really difficult for Mm -hmm. uh, dehumanization to get its claws into uh, the psyche of whoever we're talking about. The other um, important finding is that um, probably the earlier those friendships occur and the earlier we're socializing with groups that we historically may have found threatening, um, the better. Uh, and, and so um, that would be the summary is cross-group friendships. But there's all sorts of policy implications for this. where all Everything to how we uh, educate our, our kids when they're young, to how we build our cities. Um, and uh, we just have to decide this is what we want.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know, have you heard about the book uh, written by Adam White's, The Power of uh, Human? It really agrees with you he works for for northwestern actually with nork tailey um as well and he says uh, confirms like you say as well that it's the human presence human touch and human creation um and that magic of contact like you say and it and it doesn't happen automatically it takes time we need to invest time and effort in humanizing each other the way the same way that propagandists political leaders and opportunists are using media, uh, academic works, et cetera, to kind of propagate these uh, dehumanizing narratives. So that's the, both the challenge and the opportunity as well. So that said, thank you for also showing us how the kindness towards animals can also really translate into kindness. And I, before I ask you, what's any message uh, towards the end and five sweet questions, as I say, really, um, this is a book about friendliness and how it came to be an advantageous evolutionary strategy and i keep really reiterating this and i hope that a lot of uh, people and i will keep uh, talking about it from you know political different political spectrums do end up being curious enough to really understand and and that takes um, self-consciousness and mindfulness as well but i think and hope that these sort of conversations contribute to both more knowledge and more contact and positive connections as well tell me brian thank you so much for um just doing all this i think it's really important for coming along tell me do you have any message towards the end before i start asking you some super fun not book related questions okay
1: um yeah i i think if anybody were to challenge me oh come on how could friendliness really be so powerful um i would just point them to their dog And, you know, if if they've had a a dog, a friendship with a dog or relationship with a dog, I mean, they are, uh, you know, uh, my first piece of evidence, uh, Exhibit A, in my case, that it really is survival of the friendliest. Um, It's their story, and it's why there are hundreds of millions of dogs across the world, everywhere you find humans, and sadly, wolves are endangered everywhere uh, that they remain. Um, It's because a new form of friendliness evolved and it was their successful uh, strategy. And it happens that it's the same story for us. We just have to uh, keep going. And now we have to use institutions and cultural norms to uh, further improve.
0: There you go. I don't have a dog, but my dad always talks about Luxy, his childhood dog forever. And I have uh, friends who have three dogs, and I can't wait to share this conversation with them as well. But uh, those who don't own dogs can uh, learn a lot. So then, Brian, five sweet questions. First one, once the current emergency is over, quote, unquote, whenever that might be for you, any temporary awareness will also disappear. What would you not want to forget from lockdowns and this pandemic era?
1: Oh, um, gosh uh so many things uh you know i that i don't need to travel as much to be happy um Mm -hmm. uh i've actually been pretty happy to be sedentary and that was kind of a surprise because you know i'm sure you as well are traveling less Mm -hmm. um uh, (laughs) but 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 at the same time i i certainly miss traveling
0: Mm. Yeah. Which of your personality traits has been the most useful? Not the best trait, but the most useful.
1: Oh, uh, useful. Okay. Useful is, um, I definitely, (laughs) I definitely, yeah, it's not, it's not a very fun trait, but, uh, I, I, I tend to, uh, plan for the worst. Um, you know
0: oh yeah that's good
1: I send I I tend to disaster you know disasterify everything and plan it out that you know
0: do you maybe have some Balkans background because we do that (laughs) We do uh, that I all the one time. Quarter, I,
1: I'm, not, I'm one quarter Greek. so
0: Okay, yeah, that 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 might be, you know, like we do. It's a little connection there. Uh, for us, the catastrophe is kind of the default and anything else that happened uh, that's like, okay, things are really good. Um, when you have 30 minutes of free time, how do you pass that time?
1: Oh, uh, <laughs> pre-2016 or post-2016? <laughs> uh, Pre pre twenty sixteen, I would probably pick up a book or read an interesting paper. Uh, Post twenty sixteen, I was like everybody glued to Twitter.
0: Mm, wait, twenty sixteen or twenty nineteen, or when did it happen? What happened in two- Oh my God, two thousand sixteen. Yeah. Well, yeah, guys, this is American context. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so yes, now they'll get it. Um. Yeah, Twitter. Oof, let's not get into Twitter right now. <laughs> like um what skill or craft would you like to get better at
1: oh my gosh uh i would love to practice archery hmm that would be super fun i'm also a little embarrassed that i'm not better at tying knots I should probably be able to tie knots better.
0: Oh, my God. You're going to keep embarrassing all of us now. (laughs) Different things. Um, And then pertinent fifth last question. Are any of your friends completely opposite to you or are most of them similar to you?
1: Uh, I mean, my co-author, best friend, love of my life, Vanessa Woods, uh, I think if she was sitting here, she'd be laughing her head off saying, I am completely opposite from him. (laughs) so uh i think we're very similar in many ways but opposite uh and and you see the the things that are opposite when you uh live together especially in a pandemic where there's you know we're all lucky to be together more than normal um yeah
0: thank you for uh that kind of wraps up the five uh, sweet questions and this conversation in general thank you for joining us for writing this book and is there any other last short sentence that you want to say before i tell our listeners bye
1: I think uh, try to find friends who might be a little different from you. I think that's a great way to end.
0: Well, there you have it. Thank you. for. I, please check this out. Uh, it's available everywhere. It came out in July 2020. This was such a prolific and great and wonderful conversation. I hope that it inspires you all to uh, check it out, uh, read the book, learn and think about our own actions as individuals and choices that we make on a daily basis in terms of what how we treat others and what we can do to uh, keep humanizing others in the face of uh, increasing dehumanization. Stay tuned for more conversations with people from all over the globe. Uh, share this with your friends, family. Leave us a message and a rating. And see you soon. Have a nice day and uh, bye.